You're listening to The Word of Hope, a radio ministry of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Our preacher is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller with today's Word of Hope. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Dear Saints, in the Gospel lesson today, you see the kind of life into which you have been baptized. It's fraught with dangers, pain, suffering, and temptation. And as Jesus hungered, so will you. As Jesus was assaulted by the devil, you can expect the same. Now, the devil doesn't obsess over going after the heathens. They belong to him. He obsesses over going after Christians. Why? Because he lost what had been in his clutches. And this puts him into a mad rage. He comes after the baptized, and so you don't expect a life of comfort and ease after your baptism. Instead, you expect to find yourself in a dangerous wilderness that's barren with sorrow, loss, and the shadow of death. But dear saints, don't despair. Your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has overcome the wilderness of this fallen creation. He's contended with the devil's attacks, and he has prevailed. And he did this all for you because he knows that under the devil's temptations that you stumble and you falter. And when this happens, Jesus is there to lift you up, to breathe his word of life into your lungs and to bless you with forgiveness. He cloaks you with the garment of his own righteousness that cannot fail no matter how fierce the devil may rage against you. And so today, dear saints, learn this good news. Jesus has overcome temptation to save you from the devil. Now, when Jesus says temptations are sure to come, he spoke from experience. Because as soon as the Father said at Jesus' baptism, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, the devil came after Jesus to tempt him. To tell you the truth, the old serpent can't do anything else. As soon as God opens his mouth, as soon as he speaks, there you will find the devil speaking against that word. That's how much he hates the word of God. Now, the devil doesn't do this mindlessly. He does it with cunning. And he does it with prudence. Like a prowling lion that waits for his chance to pounce on hapless prey, the devil circles his target and waits for the right moment to strike. He waits until you're most vulnerable. And so the devil waited for the right right moment to come after Adam and Eve like we heard about in our Old Testament lesson. He waits until they feel like that they're not in God's presence at that moment. And then, for whatever reason, Adam seems to be sleeping. And then Eve talks with the devil and is led into sin. And then the devil says the one thing that will lead her away from God's word. He says, did God actually say? Now, if his first temptation against men was so successful, why not be just as prudent in his attack against the Son of God? And so he doesn't come after Jesus right after the Father says that this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Instead, he waits 
until after 40 days and nights passed, until Jesus hungered from fasting. Now, the hunger that Jesus felt isn't the sort of craving that you get once you skip breakfast or lunch and then you're really looking forward to dinner. The hunger that Jesus had was for some sort of nourishment to sustain his life. He was on the edge of starvation. Remember that Jesus had flesh and blood and still has flesh and blood just like you and me. And as you hunger, he hungered. And as you thirst, so he thirsts. The devil knows this, and he was about to use Jesus' flesh and blood against him to his own advantage. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, there are two things that I want you to notice here. First, Satan is casting doubt upon what God the Father had said about Jesus at his baptism. Now, there is probably a few reasons for this. Think about it. If if Satan could get Jesus to doubt his own identity as God's Son, how could he take up the cross? How could he ever look at the cup of suffering and wrath that was set before him and still take it up and say to his heavenly Father, Thy will be done. And of course, Satan is also attacking your faith in what the Father had said about Jesus. He's putting the question to you, if Jesus is the Son of God, why is he out here in the wilderness hungering? Why can't he make bread for himself to feed himself if he's so powerful? If this is the Son of God, why isn't he standing in glory instead of standing out in the middle of the desert? Now, I'm pretty sure that Satan and every one of his demons is a theologian of glory. They're well aware of God's glory, and in fact, that is exactly what they covet. That's why they fell. And they want us to covet that too. But here in this flesh, in this man, is a God who lays aside his glory who makes himself the sin-bearer, who puts himself underneath the law, even though he is the very author of the law. And this suffering, this humiliation, the demons cannot fathom, and they can't understand it. But even though they couldn't understand it, they were sure were going to use it to their advantage. They were going to try to get Jesus to sin, just like every one of us sinners. And so this brings us to the second thing. The devil's not only attacking what the Father had said about Jesus but also trying to make Jesus doubt his own Father's grace, love, and mercy. There was indeed no bread for Jesus to eat, and he was hungry. The temptation was real. It was just as real as the temptations that you feel every day. The author of Hebrews writes, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Jesus knew that he had the power to tell the stones to become bread and they would obey him. So Satan said, do it. Tell the stones to become bread. Forget about fearing, loving, and trusting in your heavenly Father and waiting on him to provide for you. Just take matters into your own hands and make bread for yourself. He went straight for the jugular of faith. Right when Jesus' mortal eyes were seeing nothing but desolation, He said, don't 
pay attention to the word of God, the word which you meditate upon in your heart. Rather, look at your eyes and believe those instead. This is where we're overtaken. We're overtaken by our eyes and what they see. In the same ways the Israelites grumbled and complained whenever they took their ears off of God's word and then looked at the wilderness through which they were wandering, we also look at our lives and we say to ourselves, how is it that my next paycheck is going to cover all the bills? How am I going to pay for those medical expenses? How am I going to pay for the kids' school? How can I still afford then to put food on the table? But to be honest, I think we're worse than the Israelites. Because at least the Israelites had a a desert to look on where they didn't see anything. We find ourselves in the midst of abundance. (laughs) And yet we still doubt our eyes. And And if Satan could get us to doubt our eyes, which tells us that God richly provides for us every day, even this day, how much more are we going to doubt our ears when they hear the word of God? But Jesus' steadfast trust in his Father's provision never wavered for a second. Without missing a beat, Jesus shoots right back at the devil. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, Jesus understands. You can't take bodily needs, the things that you need to sustain your body and life, and separate it from God's word. Instead, one proceeds from the other. As God speaks, so it happens. He promises to feed you, and so he brings it about. Not only has he bound our bodily goods to his word, but he has also promised so much more. This is what Jesus confesses in this temptation. His answer clings not just to the temporal things that sustain the body here in this life, but also to God's word that sustains us even to eternity. And so here the devil stands defeated. But the devil's not done. In the second temptation, he, he's a little more clever and even more devious. The devil decides, okay, I'll let you have God's word. I'll let you have it stand. But then the devil adds to God's word. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you you strike your foot against a stone. Now, this is just like Satan. He loves to quote scripture, just as long as he's, he's able to twist it enough to make it say what he wants it to say, not what God wants it to say. So he's mastered the art of taking things out of context and sloppy translations. Anything to get across what we want to hear as opposed to what God wants us to hear and to believe. Now, Psalm 91 is what Satan is uh, is quoting, and this is full of all kinds of wonderful comfort for, for God's saints, because it tells us that the Lord is our dwelling place and the Most High is our refuge. It teaches us that the Lord preserves our life, even though a thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand. Nevertheless, death will not come near you. Now, the devil tells Jesus, if this is true, that he's going to preserve your life, then throw yourself into danger. Throw yourself off the top of the temple and see what happens. God said he's going to to save your life. Well, now, let's see if it'll happen. 
But is this what God is saying in the psalm? Of course not. The Lord is making these promises to his saints who suffer evil when it befalls them. He's not saying that he is going to save you from recklessness and from stupidity. So Luther said that this temptation is especially dangerous for Christians because we love to put words into God's own mouth. We want God to say things like, hey, if you give enough money to the church, if your attendance is regular enough, I'll help you out with that next sickness. You won't have to worry about your paychecks in the future. He's never made such a promise, but we'd like to think that he has sometimes, I think. We also like to think that God says that, you know what, your good works, they do count for so much before my judgment throne. In fact, in heaven, when Jesus is honored for his righteousness, I'm going to bring you right next to Jesus and say, well, your works helped out too. That's what we want God to say, but it doesn't say that in Holy Scripture. Jesus says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Instead of testing God's goodness towards us, instead of putting words into God's own mouth, you should let God's word stand, as Jesus has said. Because there is no special promise of health or success, health or success if you're faithful as a church member, neither is there a promise that you're going to be honored with Jesus as a great cooperator towards your righteousness and your salvation. And when you read this text, you should come to the opposite conclusion. For every one of these temptations that Jesus wins and is victorious against the devil, you know that you have fallen. You know that you have succumbed to temptation. That's an unassailable fact. But once you have been torn down, see what remains. There is Jesus, and there is his righteousness. And with every victory over Satan, he weaves another strand into that beautiful baptismal garment that he, that he wants to give to you. And so in this gospel lesson today, your righteousness comes to an end, and Jesus' righteousness shines like the sun. He alone is without sin. Now, what about this business of the third temptation? Satan takes Jesus to the top of a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world that are lost in sin and stand condemned. In fact, they're all part of the devil's big empire of death. Jesus came into the world. He came into our flesh to win these kingdoms back to himself. But does he take the easy way? He does not. Does he bow his knee to the devil and get it all right back right then and there? He does not. Instead, Jesus breaks the kingdoms of the devil wide open and sets their prisoners free with his weakness, with his death on the cross, with the blood that he shed for your forgiveness. This redeeming blood is the crowning touch on the baptismal garment that he has been weaving together for you. Jesus doesn't demand a price in return for this treasure. It's your gift. But now that you have been baptized, now that you have been clothed with this garment of Jesus' perfect righteousness, you tell me, do the temptations stop? 
Far from it. Satan meekly goes to his doom? I don't think so. Instead, in the same way as Satan came after Jesus, so he's now coming after you. Now, how can you possibly hope to stand up under these attacks? Well, certainly not according to your strength, but according to Christ's. When you stumble and fall into sin, Jesus finds you with his gracious promises that pull you back into the garment of your salvation, the garment of his own righteousness, by telling you that you are forgiven, that he remains steadfast because you couldn't. And it's according to this strength that you too can tell the devil to get away from me. And Satan can do nothing but flee from your words. Dear saints, this is the life into which you have been baptized. It is true, it's full of trial and sorrow, but it's also a life that's been transformed into the, into the pleasant pastures of God's grace and mercy through his promises. And though your eyes can only look out to see desolation from time to time, God's word opens your ears to see with the eyes of faith, to see a table set before you in the presence of your enemies, to see that your cup is overflowing with God's mercy through his son, Jesus. And so, dear saints, this is the life into which you have been baptized. It's a life of repentance and faith that is finally fulfilled when the shadow of death finally gives way to the light of light and the brilliance of Jesus who died so that you might live and have resurrected life will give, give us the greatest joy and peace into life everlasting. Amen. May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We hope you were blessed by today's Word of Hope. Hope Lutheran Church is located at 1345 Macon Street in Aurora, Colorado. Their weekly schedule is as follows. Sunday morning worship at 915, adult Bible class and youth Sunday school at 1045 a.m. On Tuesday mornings, there is a matin service at 830 a.m. with a Bible class to follow at 930 a.m. You can find out more about Hope Lutheran Church at www.hope-aurora.org. That's www.hope-aurora.org. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you in His grace.